Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the first complete show for 2019. This is Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, and your host on the Idle Chatter podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. So, uh, hey, it's the beginning of a new year, and we need to be filled with uh, hope and expectations for uh, for a good year and a blessed year in our lives. And I know over here at our farm in New Jersey... The seed catalogs are all starting to roll in, which is always something that I like to see, even though we only raise one crop, sweet corn, and I've used the same seed, the same hybrid for many, many years, I think since 2008, so this would be the 11th or 12th planting season if you count uh, 2008, but anyway, uh, I still do like to look at everything, and also it is that time of year where the uh, winter workshops and meetings are starting, and that's always an exciting time, and I have a couple of workshops that I plan on going to, one on cover crops and uh, a few others on agronomy and the typical, uh, you know, uh, Growmark FS, CHS, whatever, CPS, excuse me, CHS is a marketing, um, grain marketing company, you know, and they go to their workshops and uh, they give you a nice lunch and then every salesman stands up there and tells you how his product is the best. So, uh, hey, it's good to get exposure to that, and I'm not knocking it, I'm not being cynical, but it's funny how you could go to uh, a workshop. I go over here in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, to the Grow Mark FS uh, workshop. That's usually just around Valentine's Day. And you'll have the guy from BASF stand up, and he'll tell you about his fungicide and show you his PowerPoint presentation and how many bushels per acre this got and this is that. And then, you know, he'll give his talk. And uh, and if you happen to use that product or interest in that product, that obviously it's a great opportunity for you to be able to ask some real technical questions. And then, you know, they're done with their presentation, and everyone applauds, and then the guy stands up from whatever, the next company, uh, whatever, Syngenta, and then he basically tells you the same thing, that his product is the best. So, uh, so hey, that's what it's all about, right? Uh, nothing wrong with that. They're trying to make a living and trying to introduce their product to you, and, uh, and to tell you the truth... If any of you listen to Ag PhD, the Hefty Brothers, either the radio show or the TV show, or both, um, that's kind of what spawned them, because they uh, were so tired of going to these meetings and never really learning anything. And to tell you the truth, that is what also spawned this Idle Chatter podcast and Farm Machinery Digest website. Because I, too, got tired. I'm not an agronomist, so I could never do anything on that side. You don't want my crop advice. But I got, uh, but there was absolutely nothing going on as far as trying to teach the people in agriculture about uh, their equipment in any way, shape, or form. You only had the, uh, the, the, uh, the dealer brochure, and no disrespect to any ag salespeople that are out there, but the, you know they would know the talking points to sell their piece of equipment or what have you. And, and like I said, I understand that. But you know, once you own something, you need to get beyond the talking points, and that's why I'm so excited to uh, be doing this podcast and uh, my website. 
And I'm also excited to uh, to tell you, as I said last time, that I will be at Commodity Classic again this year. This will be my third year at Commodity Classic. And the good folks at Firestone Ag are going to have me at their booth. And I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, they have great tires and great technology there. And I'm looking to uh, looking forward to being in there and interact or interacting with everyone that comes by from Commodity Classic. So if you've never been there, it's really a great event this year it's in Orlando Florida so it may be a little bit easier for uh, many of you to get to and if you do come to Commodity Classic I've just found out today that I will be there uh, the three days so please stop by the Firestone Ag booth come and see me if you see me walking around please introduce yourself to me whether uh, and just let me know that uh, let me shake your hand I would love to hear about your farm I'd love to hear about your family your equipment what you do there, what's going on, your animals, everything. I really, really, uh, really just want to learn about all of you, whether you watch me on a successful farming TV show or you uh, read me or you are a consumer of this podcast and website. So, uh, hey, I guess if you're not a consumer of my show, you won't be hearing this, so maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. My heart is in agriculture. And I just love to be able to learn from everyone and interact with them and say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming to the website. And I just greatly appreciate it. I'm really appreciative of the uh, good folks over at Firestone Ag. They're a great, great group of people. And even if I'm not there, just stop by the booth and check out some tires and some tracks. And uh, they'll teach you what you need to know about tires. And you could carry that carry that home with you. So listen... We're going to uh, get into our show finally today, right? And I know that uh, I'm going to be... It's uh, it's the winter season, so that means that there's a, a lot of opportunity to do some good work in your farm shop and check your equipment over, do certain things. So probably the next three or four podcasts, the next week or so, the show will be focused on working in your farm shop over the winter different uh, different things that you could uh, cover in there and get ready for the spring planting season and you know I have never been I personally have never been I'm not saying it does not exist but I personally have never been to a farm or a ranch no matter how modernized or no matter how dynamic they are that does not have some place and old gas engine something gas engine powered something and what i mean by something it could be uh an old grain truck which usually that is what uh many people have laying around and it's hidden behind the barn someplace or behind the shed or you could have an irrigation pump or any other type of gasoline engine on the farm it could have been for a um a generator set it could have been on a seed tender uh, the seed tenders are fairly new so those uh, those probably aren't laying behind the barn yet hopefully not but anyway what i'm trying to say to you is that you know farmers with your with the original recyclers and uh, i know on our place you know and i guess it has it, we, we recycle everything meaning nothing goes to the junkyard we keep it and then if you have a wife uh like my wife charlotte you know she says i don't mind what you keep but just keep it out of sight so uh, that's what those you know those hedgerows are for or hiding behind the buildings but you know we are the original the original recyclers and we always take something and that you know that comes from our background of hard work and working for everything we've we've had and uh from our family uh, lots of lots of you people listening to this i know have actually pioneered some of your land and homesteaded it in your family i know my twitter followers uh that i have people from around the world thank god which i'm very humbled by but i know a lot of people you know they've had their farm 150 200 years way more than a century farm the Bohax farm has been in our family for uh, 62 years, I think, or 63 years, so uh, long before I was born, if you're wondering how old I am. But anyway, uh, and so we're not, you know, we're, we're basically wet behind the ears compared to some of you guys who've had the family farm for, uh, you know, 150 or almost 200 years. So, uh, but anyway because of that background and because of that that upbringing and our work ethic and realizing 
that uh, nothing comes easily and something could still be used is that we hardly ever get rid of anything and we usually just park it and on the side and say well hey you know one day we're going to get that running and what I'm, that, that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about getting an older gasoline engine running properly so you could use it. Um, you know, to get back to, just to, to bust on my friends, the Hefties, both, uh, both Brian and Darren, I uh, usually go to their field day. And if anybody has never been to that, you should really check that out. It's a great event. It's the fourth Thursday in July. I did not go the last year, the past two years, just due to uh, scheduling difficulties. Uh, I usually film my TV segments for successful farming around that time of year, and it just gets to be too much. We filmed them the past few years. They've been filmed at the Firestone uh, Research Farm and Harvey Firestone's old farmstead in Columbiana, Ohio, and we usually ended up filming those. Then three days later, I'd have to be in South Dakota, so it didn't work. But anyway, but... They used to uh, have an old, if I remember correctly, it was a C60 or C70 Chevy or GMC. Obviously, the only thing that's different is the grill. Uh, flatbed truck that must have been an old grain truck at one particular time. And from what I remember, it was that body style that came out in 1973, and it probably looks like a 73 or 74, possibly a 75. I don't think it's much newer than that. And they have a flatbed on it, and, and as and Brian and Darren would stand on the back of that truck and they would go around with a microphone and they would go to the different test plots and they would explain the test plots to the people uh, and the people would follow them around uh, and you'd follow them around they would stand up and they had a microphone up there and a loudspeaker system and it worked very well and it was great because they would go and they, they would go over every test plot and tell you what they did in that plot and, and what have you but you know, as interested as I was in that, I always had a distraction because this truck ran like a bag of bolts. I mean, it hardly, hardly ran. And then they would shut it off, and uh, the exhaust was really stinking of hydrocarbons. And one day, I'm going to do a show on uh, emissions so you could understand that. But it was stinking of hydrocarbons. It was just, it was really just, it was a sad running, running machine. And uh, the body wasn't really in bad shape, but it was a sad, sad running machine. So... So the engine guy in me, you know, the hot rod farmer, used to uh, probably only listen 75% of what they were saying because I almost wanted to jump up there and open the hood and start to get that truck to run right. As a matter of fact, I even said to my wife, you know, if we come here next year, I'm going to call up Hefty and I'm going to tell him, hey, I'm going to come there a day or two ahead of time and you know, give me a toolbox. I'm going to get that truck to run right because that's one thing about me is I cannot stand a poorly running engine. I don't care, gas, diesel, old, new, what have you. It has to be running to perfection. And that is what this show today is going to be talking about. Alrighty. So these are in no uh, particular order. But what I want to discuss with you is probably why that engine and I'm going to call it an engine for this show I'm not going to because it could like I said maybe not may not be in a vehicle maybe in an old uh hay barn or something or it may be uh, I know a lot of guys out west used to have those or still have those new holland uh motorized or self-propelled is probably the better term hay wagons and they were uh, they're really neat looking if you haven't seen them I'm sure you all have and they had almost like a cab forward design and it looked almost like something that belonged in an airport to tow a plane around but um, and the early ones had gas engines I know they had Ford engines and uh, so you may have one of those or it may be a irrigation pump or it may be on a welding unit or a generator or what have you so I'm going to call it the engine for this show I'm not going to call it the vehicle I will do my best not to call it the vehicle but anyway, there are typically three areas that will cause you to sideline that old gasoline engine because it's not running properly. You know, and as an aside to this, you could most likely get this engine to run properly with very little effort and very little investment of money. And it's always, and I think that that's great, if you could put a few dollars and get another engine a vehicle or piece of machinery that you could use as a backup or something on the farm, well, that's certainly a very worthwhile investment. But the three areas that usually mess you up or park that engine is the carburetor, 
the distributor and you may say well I know that Ray but the third that most people don't think of is carbon deposits in the engine so what you need to understand is that as you move forward trying to get this engine to run properly the first thing that you would need to do is go over it and do a basic mechanical overview or mechanical testing of it is that if it and so I'm going to assume at this particular point that the engine runs because if it does not run if it has a no start condition that could actually be a show on to itself so for this show let's just consider it runs but it runs poorly it runs like Hefty's display truck but you know as an aside to that the next year they, they had that truck where I went there three or four times for two years they used it and then the next year they actually uh, had a loan from from Ram Trucks, a beautiful brand new uh, 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 Ram, I call them Dodge, Dodge flatbed. So uh, they parked that thing. But uh, sadly, I used to like that truck. But anyway, uh, what's going to happen is that we need to understand a few things. And I'm going to um, put the carburetor and the distributor timing together. So we're assuming this engine runs, but it runs very poorly. The first thing that you're going to need to do is uh, run a compression test on it. That seems that seems rudimentary, and most people uh, know about a compression test, but they do not uh, actually institute it. So there's one thing in life about knowing something, and the other thing in life is doing it. And the best way to run a compression test is to make sure you have a fully charged battery. And if you have a battery charger, put it on the battery. What you're going to need to do is disable the ignition. And the best way to disable the ignition is to disconnect the positive lead from the ignition coil. You could also, if you don't want to do that, you could ground the coil positive, the coil positive, the coil wire that goes to the distributor cap. You don't want to leave the coil wire out of the coil because it's going to, that energy is going to need to go someplace and it's going to arc. It's actually going to arc from its center terminal and could actually go and break, go through the, the, the housing and short out internally. So if you're going to disconnect the coil wire, leave it in the coil and just hook up a jumper lead to ground. And that's all that needs to be done and the engine will have no spark going to the spark plug wires. And then you're going to need to pull all the spark plugs out and they all need to be out at one time and then what you will do is you will put your compression gauge in there and then you will put the throttle to the floor and if it's got a choke on it then I'm sure it does have a choke if it's a whole carburetor engine but then you would need to actually take a piece of mechanics wire or disconnect that choke rod so that choke stays open you want the engine to be able to pump as much air as possible and not have the restriction of the choke plate while you're doing a compression test so it's going to be disable the ignition you're going to disable the ignition you're going to you're going to disable the choke plate you're going to have a battery charge or charger on a fully charged battery and then you're going to have all the plugs out and you'll put your compression gauge in one cylinder whatever it may be and then you will uh put the throttle to the floor and you will crank the engine while you watch the compression gauge usually most compression gauges have a hose long enough that you could put it up onto the windshield but on some older grain trucks or something or a, let's say if you have a hay bind or, or what have you you may not be able to do it so you may need two people and then what you'll do is you'll crank the engine over and you'll do at least three to four puffs of the gauge so of the needle because what you'll find is that in the first puff it's only going to go up to a certain reading then usually about I like to do three puffs of the needle and then you will see that the needle will stabilize and that will be your compression reading and what you're looking for on an older engine is uniformity amongst the cylinders. You know, it may very well have lower compression than what would be called for, let's say if it's called for 120 pounds or 130 pounds, you may uh, low that you may have, you know, 110 pounds or 108 pounds. But what you're going to do is look for uniformity between the cylinders and you're going to look for the uniformity and you're going to divide that out as a percentage. So you really don't want more than about 10 or 12% variation, ideally, in the compression in each cylinder. But then again, you know, keep in mind that, you know, we're not using this as, you know, to go cross country, this engine. So what have you. So you would be a little bit more forgiving of, of 
of that range but you don't want to look at the numbers per se you want to look at the numbers and then you want to look at the percentage so if cylinder one has a hundred pounds and cylinder two has a hundred ten pounds and cylinder three has ninety pounds they're all within ten percent of one another so that's pretty good for an older engine that you're looking to put back in service so look at it as a percentage of difference between the cylinders or an engineering we'd call it a delta a delta a delta p for delta pressure and it's important to have the throttle open and it's important to have the battery charge and the battery charger on it because the cranking speed will actually will be be a main de uh, determination in how much the compression reading comes out to be so if you're cranking the engine very slowly it does not have the ability to pump any air uh, or very little air i should say and it'll definitely impact the, comp the uh, compression test so once we do that we say okay fine this is all good all right then we know we have to we were sound mechanically the next thing that i would like for you to do if i or if i were working on the engine what i would basically do is i would do a thorough cleaning of the carburetor and this is where you need to be familiar with your carburetor a little bit on the engine that you're working on if it's a two-piece carburetor or three-piece carburetor what what the industry calls a three-piece carburetor would be like a rochester quadrajet and that would have an air horn a main body and the throttle plates underneath it uh, and those three pieces all come apart so you could actually you'd have to flip take the carburetor off and flip it over to take the the, the, uh, the bolts out from the bottom to remove the throttle body the throttle plate area which is called the throttle body from the main body but uh, if it's a two-piece carburetor then you would not have that so you're going to have to glean that on your own and if it is a three-piece carburetor you want to make sure that the carburetor uh, the bottom piece the throttle the throttle body to the main body is not loose because if that is loose or that gasket is so deteriorated that's going to suck air this thing is going to run like a bag of bolts and you'll chase your tail forever so what i usually like to do is you know you put eyeballs on the carburetor if you've been good at maintaining it over the years before this you sidelined it then what you will do is you will find that the carburetor is really not too dirty but you need to clean it and with spray carburetor cleaner and you need to tighten up all of the fasteners the fasteners that hold the carburetor together you snug them up you don't want to moose them you're not using an electric uh, dr uh drill or something to tighten these up an electric ratchet you're using you're using your hand and you want to snug up all the bolts around the carburetor and if it's uh three piece you'll have to take it off and snug the bolts underneath it and then you want to make sure that the bolts to the intake manifold are snug also and you want to look at that because if it's sucking air any place it's not going to work right and then I, you need to bathe it with a carburetor cleaner and you need to do two other things all right so once you do a good a good outside bath with the carburetor cleaner you're going to need to spray inside the air horn and clean the boosters and clean the venturi and i usually like to take the carburetor off so that i could clean by the throttle plates and clean underneath there and what have you but it's like i say depending upon how how good of a maintenance person you were will determine whether you need to do that but i also want you to identify the air bleeds on the carburetor and the air bleeds will be someplace on the top of the carburetor because if they are dirty or plugged then uh they will have they will have a drastic impact on how the carburetor runs and whether the mixture screws adjust usually people falsely determine that a carburetor is defective because the mixture screws aren't adjusting properly well what we what we would say in the industry have no authority you turn them in you turn them out and nothing changes and on a carburetor the jets act the jets actually determine the volume of fuel but the air bleeds determine the shape of the fuel curve so it determines the sh at what load and rpm it influences the fuel curve so the air bleeds are very 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 critical and they'll look like little pinholes on top of the carburetor air horn and each brand of carburetor has them in a different place but it every carburetor is an air bleed so i don't care whether it's on your lawnmower or whether it's on uh on a on a, a, a big old gas engine in 604 cubic inch gmc gas engine in a grain truck they're going to have air bleeds so carburetors have air bleeds and it's very important for you to keep them clean and then because that as i said shapes the fuel curve and then the other thing that i would like for you to do is 
is take the mixture screws out. I would seat them gently, one at a time, seat them, and then count how many turns it was to be seated, and then take the mixture screw out, and I like to clean the mixture screw with spray carburetor cleaner, and then also take the tube with the spray carburetor cleaner and go into that mixture screw passage and make sure it's clean. And then what will happen is that you, when you do that, look down the air horn because you'll actually see below the booster venturi, you'll see that the carburetor cleaner coming out. And then I like to take a very mild, worn piece of Scotch-Brite. You do not want to use emery cloth or sandpaper. And then polish the tip of the uh, idle mixture screw and then spray it off with carburetor cleaner. And then you could put the mixture screw back in the same spot as it was before. I'm not saying that's the correct spot, but that's where it was before. So we could start there. And if you don't want to do that, a good rule of thumb with a carburetor is to back the mixture screw. Seat it gently with your with you know, by hand, you, you know, you may have to use a screwdriver, but you're not moosing it, just seat it gently, and then back it out two turns. That's usually a good starting point for adjustment. The next thing, uh, so you'll do that on both mixture screws if it has two mixture screws. And uh, so now we've got that done. The next thing I want you to do is look inside the distributor. If it has breaker points, then obviously you need to check those breaker points, make sure that the that the breakers are clean and not rusty, and that you need also to uh, to uh, check the the gap on them, or you could use a dwell meter if it's if the engine runs, you could use a dwell meter but check the gap and also. I would, this particular point, I would say, unless those points are very, very new, I would put a new set of points and condenser in it, and do not forget to oil the center wick that's usually underneath the rotor. Uh, there's a wick in there, and you need to put some oil, and to put the distributor cam loop, a very little bit of distributor cam loop on one lobe of the cam, and then you could if the distributor is out, you could turn it by hand and then wipe the excess off. It's, uh, if you do not put that distributor cam loop on that distributor cam, that you will wear the rubbing block on the points excessively. And as the points wear, the gap closes up and the, the timing retards, the ignition timing retards. A lot of people don't realize that. So the dwell goes longer, the ignition timing retards, and the amount of coil saturation uh, the, the coil saturates longer, but it doesn't have enough firing time. Now, I'm going to break away in this sequence for a minute. What you want to do is you want to really look at that distributor, and when you have the distributor cap off, check the cap, you want to look at the contacts, you want to look at the center, the carbon button on that, the carbon button in that distributor cap, you want to pull the wires out. You could pull them out one at a time and make sure there's not corrosion into the, um, into the, into where it sits in the distributor cap, and look that all over for the coil wire and every cylinder wire. And then you want to with you want to grab the rotor, and you want to grab the rotor, and you want to be able to try to twist it, and you want to twist it because that will actually be the centrifugal or centrifugal, however you want to pronounce it, uh, advance mechanism, and you should be able to move that rotor with the engine off. And I, don't, I mean in clock rotation. I don't mean move it up and down or side to side. You want to move that rotor. And the other thing that you want to do is you want to take that rotor and you want to see if you could or you could grab it and then move that distributor shaft side to side. Very often people neglected that oil wick that's underneath the rotor and most distributors don't have a bearing in them. They have a bushing on them and the bushing starved for oil and the bushing wore and became elliptical. And what would happen is that the engine would run and the distributor shaft would be bouncing all around. I mean, I'm talking thousands of an inch. I'm not talking where, you know, it's two inches bouncing all around and it would affect what's called the point opening signal and so which would accept affect the coil saturation and a dwell and the timing and the engine would run very very poorly so that is something you need to look at now um, so you want to make sure that that advanced mechanism works and we're going to touch on that a little bit more later on but if it doesn't work you're going to need to take that distributor part if it's a Delco distributor uh, an older style Delco or newer style Delco I should say then most of the time on the V8 engines the weights were above underneath the rotor they're very easy to work on and if it is a uh, 
another brand of distributor or an older Delco, you will have to take the shaft out of the distributor to get to the weights to free them up because if that engine does not have any ignition advance, it'll idle fine or run fine, but it'll have no power. Or if the advanced weights are stuck out, then somebody retarded the timing uh, because the timing would be too advanced at crank and at low speeds, and it'll ping and it'll kick back against the starter. So you need to look at that. A quick note is that if you have to pull that distributor shaft out, what I like to do is take a paint pen and mark the rotor position onto the case along with the position of the gear. And so I have three marks. I have a mark where the rotor tip is, uh, the case, and then on for the gear, the distributor gear on the bottom. So you could just put those all back in the same spot. People argue with me and say, well, you can put the gear back in a different spot. And, you know, that is true. It's only going to go in, you know, 180 degrees the other way because the uh, it has a roll pin in it, so it can't go in all different ways. But my contention is, and my dad taught me this when he was a aircraft mechanic after he crashed uh, in a sandstorm flying p-51 mustangs when he was in uh when the war and the thing is that you know it's just as easy to put it back in the same spot and not worry about anything that it wore a certain way would have you instead of just throwing it in a box and then jerking around later on so i like to mark those but what you'll find with most older distributors is that there'll be enough caked uh burnt oil probably is a better way for me to say it from a lack of of maintenance on that distributor shaft which will not allow that shaft to come out of the housing and in most applications what people will do or most times people it'll come up so far and it'll stop because on the shaft it hit that 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 baked on oil and it's uh can't go through the bushing so what they usually do is tap it out with a, a piece of wood and a, and a hammer or a dead blow hammer and a piece of wood. And what will happen is that you'll actually pull the bushing out of the distributor housing. And for all intents and purposes, at that particular point, the distributor is junk. So what I like to do is take the distributor, uh, take the gear off the bottom. I have everything marked. I try. I pull the shaft out as much as I can and then I put the distributor upside down in a vise and then I spray into the housing penetrating oil like a PB blaster or WD-40. I particularly like PB blaster but if you have your own brand you like so be it. It makes no difference. Um, and then let it soak in there and keep soaking it for a day or two and then working it in and working it out until you get it out without without destroying that bushing because once you destroy that bushing it is junk so and then what you're going to need to do is check that all over get those weights to work and then you could put that all back together so that's the distributor and then and we're going to revisit this in more detail in, in a minute or so and the next thing that I want to discuss is carbon deposits. Most engines that were used like that have a load of carbon deposits on the pistons and in the back side of the intake valve that's called IVC intake, uh, IVD, excuse me, intake valve deposits. And if it's on the piston, it's called CCD, combustion chamber deposits. And what those deposits do is if it's on the intake valve, it impedes the airflow and actually wicks the, the fuel air mixture into the carbon and it absorbs it like a sponge and then at low speeds the engine is too lean and then at higher speeds it actually the increased airflow actually evaporates that fuel to a certain extent out of the carbon and makes the mixture overly rich and if these engines were idled a lot or used uh for short trips and a lot of on and off what have you it's going to probably build a lot of carbon and also if the engine had worn valve stem seals or worn valve guides and it was puffing some oil had blue bluish smoke on startup after it was shut off for a while then that will also build a lot of deposits but that's on the piston and there is a way to remove those chemically which will be the last thing i will discuss and still until i go into the um special delivery segment which i have an interesting letter here from uh, a listener in uh, i'm gonna say north dakota in nevada but anyway so those are those two things three things with the carbon and the other thing i want to talk on briefly is the pcv valve and if it's an engine that is probably from the 1960s on up it has a pcv valve uh, which is positive crankcase ventilation if it's an older engine has a road draft tube but the pcv valve is 
basically a controlled vacuum leak that allows the crankcase to breathe and if you have an engine that does not want to run properly and you've done everything I've said and you cannot get it to idle properly and run properly take the PCV valve out and then plug remove it from the vacuum line and plug temporary plug plug the hose and see if the engine runs better because there's a very good possibility that the PCV valve, even if it's brand new, is not the proper flow rate for that engine. And if it's not the proper flow rate for that engine, then you will have a carburetor that does not want to adjust. Alrighty? So, now I'm going to back up for, for a minute. Rebuilt carburetors that you buy in rebuilt distributors are usually very problematic. And I will explain to you why. So if at all possible, you do not want to bring that carburetor or that distributor to the local auto parts store in town and buy a rebuilt replacement for it. And the reason uh, for that, and I'll start with the distributor, is that the rate of advance on the distributor is not going to be the same as that originally was when that engine was made so when you when you buy a rebuilt distributor they put in springs they the weight will usually be the same but the, the springs and the rate of advance is not as that engine originally wanted it's like going buying a suit off the rack and if you were willing to recurve that distributor then that would be fine so so that is something that you need to keep in mind that if if that truck that engine ran well prior to you parking it and start to deteriorate over time then it's usually carburetor carbon deposits or something like that but the fact of the matter is is that you don't want to try to replace that part if you don't need to simply because you want a shiny new one make your old one shiny and new but the real problem comes with the carburetor because when you buy a rebuilt carburetor and for a lot of this older stuff you're not finding a rebuilt carburetor anymore but if you do find something lots of these rebuilders take many carburetors of the same family and they take them apart and they clean them all at the same time and they put them all back together and all the parts interchange and i did a uh i did a show about this uh, if you look in my archives it would not be on the fred network or ag daily if you look in my archives i did a show about this the difference between new remanufactured and rebuilt and so what they do is they take all these parts all these jets these air bleeds whatever and they throw it all together because it's all the same family it'd be like a guy going to a grain elevator and a grain elevator dumping all the corn into the same hopper you have a uh, 110 day corn this guy's got 120 day corn this guy has this hybrid this one has the other hybrid this guy's got a triple stack and it all goes in together and they they put those parts in the carburetor and and something like that you could never make right uh unless you're so intimate with that carburetor and you go in there with a pin gauge and you measure everything so the fact of the matter is is that if you need to re-gasket your carburetor buy a kit for it so that's you know you don't need to throw it away or not throw it away bring it to town and get it rebuilt because i will almost guarantee you that it will not have the proper jets air bleeds or orifices in it even though it will look the same on the outside and that you will be able then you will be chasing your tail forever now the other thing uh so we went through that and i want to touch on another uh, couple of uh, topics real quickly the spark advance curve of any gasoline engine is going to be predicated upon the burn rate or the burn speed of the fuel in the combustion chamber and keep in mind that as today's gasoline is different in many different ways its chemical composition and its burn speed is different than it was when that truck was made let's say in 1974 or that engine and also the engine itself has worn so the base timing spec and the rate of advance you must always check the rate of advance with a timing light the base timing spec that the manufacturer gave you and the uh is only a starting point you may find because the engine is older the fuel is different it has carbon deposits in it that it may want two or three degrees more timing or two or three degrees less timing so if the spec is six degrees at top dead center that's your starting point then i would go plus two 
minus two. I'd go up to eight. I'd go up. I'd, I'd, I'd go down to four and see what it likes, because the timing spec. You know, that's the difference between a chef and a cook. A cook follows the recipe. A chef basically tastes it and, and dolls it up and and, and says it needs a little bit more salt today. So, but the take-home message here is that the timing specification is only a starting point on an older engine today with a lot of hours or mileage on it and modern fuel so that's the take the take-home message the other take-home message i want you to to uh to bring with you is that it is very common for somebody over the years to have changed the ignition coil and there's coils with internal resistors and external resistors it is very possible, let's say on this engine you determine that the coil is bad, and this is 2019, you go to town and you buy a coil for it, even though it has, it says, okay, this is an external resistor coil, meaning it has a ballast resistor or an internal resistor where it has no external resistor wire or ballast. Uh, the, res the primary resistance of that coil, which you could check very easily across the two terminals, the negative and the positive terminal uh, with the coil disconnected, in your hand or on the on the engine yet uh, is going to be imperative to how that system how that ignition system works and how that engine runs and I've seen on a lot of applications where this engine calls for a two uh, whatever uh, half a ohm resistance in the coil and the guy goes to the auto parts store and he comes home with a 10 ohm resistance coil and then let's say if it has a uh, has a ballast wire on it and it stacks up that resistance and now it's got 20 ohms or 30 ohms of primary resistance and the idle engine idles fine but when you put it under load it starts to buck and spit and backfire you release the throttle and everything is fine it's because the primary resistance is is too high or in some instances too low Usually, if it's too low, it'll run fine, but it'll burn the points uh, out prematurely. But if it's too high, it will not have enough voltage going to the spark plugs. So, if it ran well before it was put to, put to, to bed uh, with that coil, and you need to replace it because that coil cracked, there's oil coming out of it, check the resistance of the primary windings with an ohmmeter. And I did a podcast a week or two ago about how to use an ohmmeter. Check the resistance of that and then bring your ohmmeter to town. And if, let's say, if your old coil had 3 ohms resistance, get a coil that's near 3 ohms. And another common problem that people do is they end up putting the coil wires on backwards. The primary leads, always remember that from the ignition switch, it goes to the positive side and to the breaker points, or if it's an electronic ignition to the distributor, it goes to the negative side. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that if it has, if it's a GM engine with electronic ignition, an HGI system, so that would be 1975 or newer, unless somebody retrofitted an older engine, is that if you have the ignition module has the incorrect dwell, uh, that system had was called an expanding dwell so you could hook up your dwell meter to it and read what the engine is running it should have on a v8 it should have between five and ten degrees of dwell at idle and that at higher rpm about by 2500 it should have about 30 to 35 degrees of dwell that's what's called an expanding dwell and if that dwell is fixed uh that module is bad but you will still have spark and the engine will run but it'll run like a bag of bolts almost run like it has a burnt valve so you know and that's another test that you could do when I, about after the compression test when you get running you could do a vacuum test and look for a very steady vacuum uh, needle on the vacuum gauge so that's very common that the, uh, the, the somebody replaced the coil they put the wires on backwards and they had the coil flipped the wrong direction. They put the they have the positive with a negative should go, and then it ran like a bag of bolts. The carburetor would not adjust, and um, they ended up parking it or not using it, and saying they're going to fix it one day. So to quickly recap what we have here, you want to make sure that the engine is sound mechanically. A compression test, a vacuum test, if you want to do that, very simple. You want to clean and tighten the carburetor. You want to make sure the air bleeds are clean and the idle mixture screw passages and the mixture screws are, are clean. And then 
you want to be able to look inside the distributor you want to mechanically check to see if the advanced mechanism works you uh, you also want to realize that the base timing uh, is only a starting point of specification and then you most engines would want about 20 to 25 degrees to 30 degrees over the base timing in about 25 to 3000 2500 to 3000 rpm for the advance and as far as the carbon deposits are concerned there are a number of very good chemicals that you could put right through the spark plug hole the gm top engine cleaner and fuel injector cleaner chemical is probably one of the best it's available at all gm dealers and what you could do is you could uh actually pour that in to the spark plug holes about an ounce or two on the top of each cylinder that'll clean the carbon off the uh, pistons it will not clean the carbon off the valves and then uh, you could let that sit for a day or two and then crank the engine over by hand or bump the starter and get that out and you would want to dump the oil because some of it will leak past the rings into the oil and then start it up put the plugs back in it and it'll smoke like an old chimney like an old uh, and that'll be the carbon burning off and then in the gas tank you could use a product such as Chevron Tecron complete fuel system cleaner you can use that on carburetor engines and it uh, is excellent it doesn't work as quickly as it would be on a fuel injected engine because the fuel injector sprays right on the intake valve but that fuel that that uh, that enhanced fuel with that inject with that uh, Tecron in it you may have to do two or three tanks will definitely impact and affect the uh, the deposits on the back side of the valve and over time clean them up so listen you know hey we're conservative as farmers we got a good piece of equipment back there it's not running it's not running properly you know give it a look check these things and if you come up empty-handed feel free to contact me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and i want to see those engines rolling and i i'm yeah i'm mad at hefty as i said because they took the easy way out they got a brand new truck yeah, I, i'd rather put the money in fertility and someplace else instead of uh, instead of instead of doing that not that i want a new truck but so a lot of these engines we just need them to do something on the farm so uh hopefully you'll get that running and i know that you will and contact me if you have any issues so now we're going to go into our special delivery segment, and I'm proud to say to you that it's brought to you by Firestone Ag. They're a company that was founded by Harvey Firestone, and he was a fourth-generation farmer. He's just like us from Columbiana, Ohio. Mr. Firestone dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors, and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today and lives on with their 23-degree tread bar design and AD2 technology. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm. Trust it only to Firestone. And, uh, you know, that is so true because, as I say every week, that that soil, you know, is, is where everything happens. And if we're riding on it with a tire that's compacting the soil excessively, then you know, we're always going to have issues. So that is our, our intro here. And my thanks to Firestone. And I have a letter, and I'm going to read it. And it says, Hi. My name is Gene, and I live in southern Nevada. Here we only have 91 octane gasoline as our super high test. I listened to your podcast about fuels. Well, thank you, Gene, for listening to that. So I have an understanding what the octane rating numbers mean. I have a 1989 Formula Firebird with a 355 and 11.8 to 1 compression. Well, that's a sweet engine. It's a nice built engine if it's got that in it. Uh... By the way, a, a 355 is a 350 Chevy 30,000s overboard. And a 2018 Mustang GT with a 5 liter and 12.0 to 1 compression. And uh, breaking in from his letter also, keep in mind that that's a stock on the Mustang. Those new engines are like 12 to 1 right from the factory. Whereas the Firebird was probably around 10 to 1, probably not even 9.5 to 1. Both cars are computer controlled and both are reducing timing due to low octane rating to prevent pinging. Can there be... Uh, when I go to the auto parts store, I see different brands of octane boosters. My question is, do these products work and can there be any damage to the engine after prolonged usage? I listen every week and I'm getting a wonderful education about all things mechanical. Thank you, Gene Worst, Nevada. Well, thank you so much for listening, Gene, and uh, you're down there, if you're outside of Las Vegas, south of there, then you're in ranch country. 
and it's hot and dry. But to answer your question succinctly, that uh, octane boosters, um, the majority of them do work, and the question is how effectively they work, how many points of octane they will add to the gasoline. And historically, they are uh, some sort of product, let's say like MTBE, with his, which is methyl tertiary butyl ether, which was actually outlawed from gasoline. Well, there could be an ethanol-based product, an alcohol product to raise the octane. And they're usually mixed with a carrier such as tuulene. I can never pronounce that properly. It's T-O-U-L-E-N-E. And uh, and to answer your question, yes, they do work. But what I'm more concerned with is that, you know, why are those engines knocking the Firebird? I could give a little bit of a, a excuse to uh, the Mustang if it truly is knocking, which I tend to think it is not. And that is because it's got a fast burn combustion chamber, very fast burn combustion chamber. And unless um, it's very, very hot outside and the air is very hot, that... Um, that you probably are not that probably is not knocking but that could be a show all onto itself but to answer your question as long as on as long as if it's an oxygen sensory equipped vehicle which both of you yours are as long as the product uh does not have lead in it to raise the octane which i don't think that you would find that on the product on the shelf of the auto parts store yes it will raise the octane the dosing rate is going to be based upon how effective uh that particular product is how much of the of the octane uh, boosting product they have in the carrier and no you are not going to hurt anything so all the thing you're going to do is hurt your pocketbook and it being a pain in the neck to um to keep buying octane booster and putting it in so my question to you and please contact me with an email and and i could readdress this on a future podcast the future show is that um i want to know if those engines are really knocking specifically the mustang which i doubt uh and or you're just assuming they're knocking because it has 91 octane fuel so send me an email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and we could address this and I could also uh, bring an update to everyone on the show here. So listen, thank you so much for listening. Thank you uh, for being part of the Hot Rod Farmer community. Uh, you guys and gals are a blessing to me. And, you know, also, you always know when I say guys, I know there's a lot of women involved in agriculture, and I'm using that as an endearing term for a group of people. So I'm going to say folks, so all you folks that listen, I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, I, and I just want you to know that uh, the hot rod farmer, as always, is pulling for you, the American farmer, and my beloved, beloved America. You have a blessed week, and I look forward to talking to you next week. And we, uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to talk about next week. I'm going to keep you guessing. You have a great day, and I will, and hopefully you tune in next time. Bye-bye.